We'll be in Luke chapter 4, if you want to head that way. Thanks to our band for just helping us uh, get right after it this morning. And as we gather together, this is uh, the third Sunday of the Lent season. And so I hope that uh, if you have been journeying along with us, I hope that it's been fruitful for you so far. Uh, It's also never too late. And so if you want to jump into it, we have another couple of weeks as we are preparing ourselves for uh, Holy Week and Easter weekend. Uh, there are, uh, there's fasting as a part of it, and so there's individual fasts. We do a corporate fast on Wednesdays to fast at lunch, and then uh, we're collecting an offering over the course of this uh, season. There's a box back here in the lobby, and it says dollar offering. That's going to the uh, Women's New Life Center. And so uh, we're just trying to really orient ourselves in the direction of what Holy Week and Easter weekend is all about. And so uh, we've been talking about that for a couple of weeks. And so if you have any questions, if I can explain it better, you know, I will. But I kind of want to get right down to right down to it today. As far as preaching goes, the, this is, the like I said, the third Sunday. And we spent these Sundays, the previous two, looking at... Jesus and his experience in the wilderness, um, fasting for 40 days and being uh, then tempted by the enemy. And so Lent is modeled after that 40-day fast in the desert. And here is Jesus uh, off by himself, fasting and praying. And so we spend our, it's 40 days, not counting Sundays, uh, from Ash Wednesday all the way till Easter. And so we're doing that same thing. We're, we're imitating him in that way. And we're joining him in, in the wilderness. And so connected to that is this idea that, that Jesus talks about um, his disciples. And he invites us all to come after him. He says, you just need to deny yourself, take up your cross every day and follow me. Now, what that looks like in real life is sometimes a little bit ambiguous. And so, uh, but in the, in the account of Jesus in the wilderness, he is modeling for us what it looks like to deny yourself and to take up your cross every day and to follow after the Lord. And so he's modeling it for us. We're sitting with him in the desert. And so uh, the previous two weeks, we looked at the first two temptations that the enemy brings his way. And today we'll look at the third, um, just to be able to kind of get an idea of what is it, what does it look like? If our entire plan in following Christ is, is imitating him, it's being with him, it's becoming like him, then what better way to do that than to, buy, than to get into it slowly and to study what he models for us. So let me just read the whole account. So be Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, uh, throw yourself down from here. 
For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. First one is self-denial. So as I've said the the previous couple of weeks, just to kind of refresh our uh, memories a little bit, at the heart of self-denial, it's kind of obvious, but it's a, it's, a saying, it's a saying no to you. There's a refusal. So if you want to follow after Christ, he says, first of all, you have to be willing to refuse some things. Number one would be your own self-centered desires that you were born with as a broken person. You have to figure out what those are, and you have to be willing to refuse them. To say no to you in order to say yes to the Lord. That's the, the first thing that he says. Um, and so in the, in the first temptation account, the enemy says, turn these stones into bread, which is probably very tempting to someone who's been fasting for 40 days. You know, uh, If you're fasting lunch on Wednesdays, it's hard to make it to dinner. Some of y'all are like early dinner, right? 3.30? Too early? No? Okay. Uh, it's hard to skip one meal. You know, Here you are 40 days in, and he says, hey, how about some nice warm wonderful bread. And he definitely has the power to do that. And, and so the enemy is appealing to him to, he's like, Hey, you need to just take control of this situation. Um, your body is craving this. So just say yes to yourself. And Jesus says, actually, no, I'm going to say no to myself in that. So he refuses to take control and let his physical desires rule him. The second temptation in this account is he, he brings him up and shows him all the powerful kingdoms of the world and lies to him and says, the enemy says, well, I have, I currently have all the power and the glory for these things. I'll just give them to you if you worship me. Um, instead of having to go to the cross and suffer the worst death imaginable, um, and to get this glory and authority, how about you just worship me? It's like a little, little side, a little shortcut over here. Um, and Jesus spots the lie because the devil does not have that kind of authority and, and power. He spots the lie. He spots the shortcut. And he says, well, I, it, would, it would be nice to avoid the cross, but, but God has that in my path. That's what obedience looks like for me. And so I'm, I'm not going to take the shortcut. I'm not going to avoid what God has for me, even though it's difficult. I'm going like, to go straight on at it. So this third temptation, it's, it's related uh, because all, all temptation kind of has the same thing. Um, it, there's this appeal to something that we want, something within us. Um, so look again at verse 9. Took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Um, for as is written, is, uh, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. We'll get to that part in a minute. The idea is he brings him, and this is, uh, I heard it described yesterday, I was listening to something, as like, a, like, uh, like Jesus is kind of having like a vision, you know. And so there's Jesus and there's the enemy, whoever that is, uh, whatever that looks like on the, the pinnacle of the temple. And I did some research on this, and... Uh, they, there's some debate on like which, which end of the temple this is, but they think it's the one, it's like the, the corner of the building where that, that was facing like the rising sun. 
And at the first sight of daybreak is when the shofar player, like the ram's horn player, would blast the horn to let everyone know that like, it's time for morning worship. And so it's like at the lookout point. And they, different people estimate at that point in time how high it would have been. Some say 450 feet. Some say maybe as high as 700 feet uh, up, right? So the, uh, the presentation is, hey, throw yourself off this building, now, what would happen if Jesus threw himself off the building? Well, uh, first of all, him even appearing in this spot would signal something to like to the entire uh, the the entire Jewish community, because uh, they they interpret uh, it's, it's in Micah three verse one and kind of have that, but but really the tradition of the rabbis uh, they kind of in, interpret that verse and they kind of added some stuff to it. But the the understanding is that whenever the Messiah shows up and he declares, hey, I'm here. Let's, let's take this place back from Rome. Let's bring Israel back to its like world dominance. You know, whenever the Messiah figure is there, that this is the place where he's going to appear. That everyone will be kind of out there kind of waiting for the sun to rise and stuff like that. And if, you, if you've ever been around sunrise very much, there's like a, it gets light, it gets light. And then like the sun kind of breaks. So everyone would be kind of waiting and waiting and waiting. All of a sudden, who's that up there? Oh, wait, isn't that what the prophets have said would happen? Isn't what the rabbis taught us? That guy doesn't have a shofar. That must be the Messiah. He's not blasting the horn. He's screaming something to us. And so the first thing that would have happened just by him appearing there would have been, uh, it would have set all of that messianic role into motion. Now, from a timeline standpoint, Jesus, he, you know, they always say he's 30. Let's, let's say he's 30. Um, and he has just been baptized. So in his baptism, he comes up out of the water. And uh, much like we saw Reese uh, a few minutes ago, except when Jesus came out of the water, a voice from heaven spoke and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so Jesus heard that. Everyone there heard that. And so that's very fresh. And then he, then he immediately goes to the wilderness and fasts for 40 days. And so he has not begun his public ministry yet. People don't know who he is yet. He has, he has heard, he knows, but everyone else doesn't. And so by him just appearing on the pinnacle of the temple, one thing that would happen is that he would be announcing his messianic presence before the timeline of the father like, had that moment there. Does that make sense? Okay. So uh, he would have accelerated God's timeline of him being the Messiah. First of all, just by his appearance. Second thing, um, if he had thrown himself off the building, according to uh, your like lying enemies version of Psalm 91, which is what he quotes, uh, here's what would happen is God would command angels to guard him and they would swoop in and catch him so that he like wouldn't strike his foot against a stone. That's the lie that's being whispered to, to, to Jesus. And so it's kind of twofold. It's like, hey, let's, let's accelerate the timeline of you being like the known Messiah. And to make it even more awesome, how about you jump down? And all these people are going to be like, oh, no, he's falling hundreds and hundreds of feet. And then like angels come in and catch you. And then they're going to really think that you're something. So either one of those would have happened either accelerate the timeline or he becomes famous as the guy who jumped off the building and got caught by the angels or both. 
And either way, the time is not right for him like, to be known as the, as the Messiah. And the manner by which God rolls that out is not by jumping off of a building. And so if you kind of read between the lines, he's, he's tried to go after Jesus' physical appetite. He's tried to go after, after that kind of lust that we all have for power and, and wealth and glory. And now he's going toward probably ego. Wouldn't it be nice to suddenly become, become famous for something? So again, we see an offer of taking control. Again, we see a shortcut. But now we see this appeal to Jesus' ego and his pride. Now, it's a fair question to say, but does he even have those? You know, like does Jesus have an ego? Could Jesus, is Jesus prideful? Like don't we see this picture of humility and, and compassion and all these kinds of things? Well, it says in Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus in every way has been tempted as we are. In every way like we are. If Jesus was fully human and fully God, then the fully human part of him had this potential to become like a prideful egomaniac just like all of us. If he was tempted in every way as we are, it means that he not only battled physical desires in terms of turning stones to bread and everything else that comes with physical desires. He also, he, he also battled like power and glory and wealth and all the things that all these kingdoms could offer to him. And in this third one, we see that he also like had to wrestle with ego and pride. If Hebrews 4.15 is correct, then anything you and I go through, he's already gone through it. The end of that verse says he was without sin. So there's a difference between us in that regard. And so here's Jesus, hungry, spiritually very strong, physically very weak. And here's this temptation in front of him to basically become an instant celebrity because the Messiah was a big deal. And let's be honest. Deep down inside, we, we love attention. We love, to, we love for people to make a big deal out of us. We, we kind of all secretly desire fame. Maybe not, maybe not into adulthood quite as much, but growing up, there's this aspiration to be a, a rock star or a pop star or whatever kind of musical person on a stage. There's a there's this desire to to have the stadium of people chanting you as you walk up uh, with with the you know game game winning run on third kind of thing you know like we we love that we would all love to walk up the 18th green at Augusta and have the grandstands rise in our honor you know we we love those things we 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 there's a part of us that has all of us has at some point entertained what would it it would be like to just be like to have that kind of a claim, to have people think that you're awesome on that scale. Um, there's an ego and a pride that we all were born with. And there's an appeal that's there. And here's Jesus. And that's the, the carrot being dangled in front of him. Is like, hey, how about, how about this? Wouldn't that be cool? So this, this may sound extreme or maybe a bit absolute, but, but I think... It, 
in terms of self-denial, it's going to always require you to face some form of appeal to your pride. Thinking about the first temptation, thinking about the second temptation and the third, all of them have an appeal to that prideful, self-reliant, self-exalting, whatever it is that's in humans. And Jesus had to, he had to bear the weight of that too. If you start to pay attention to marketing, think about how many slogans are aimed at our ego and our pride. Here's a few. You deserve a break today. Don't you? Have it your way. You know what a burger should taste like, right? You should have it your way. Who cares what they think? Just do it. What's the implication there? You know? Who cares about anything else? Just 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 go for it. Here's one that's a little subtle because you're worth it. The breakfast of champions. It tastes like garbage, but yet they call it the breakfast of champions. And they put these athletes on the front. And so you're sitting there as a kid thinking, if I eat this, I'm going to be the next, like, whatever. And it's just, and he had him. How about this? This is the original slogan. What happens here stays here. It's morphed into what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas or wherever you are. But the original one was what happens here stays here. The appeal to that pride and that ego of like, yeah, you can do whatever you want and we promise not to tell. Like, how twisted is that? Um, here's one more that will offend some of you. The happiest place on earth. <laughs> <laughs> not anti-Disney, I'm just saying. <laughs> Think about what they're appealing to. There's, like, marketers have figured out, and not, not all products do this, but they've, they've figured out that one way is to appeal to that part of you that's like, man, if we can make this beer commercial look like, all you have to do is, like, drink this, and suddenly your backyard will be transformed into, like, this pool with all these, like, incredible people partying and everything, it's going to change your entire life. And then, and you're watching the commercial, and you're like, oh, that's not really what happens, but there's a part of you that's like, wouldn't that be awesome, though? And so the thing with temptation, it's just like marketing a product, except the product being marketed is you. It's, your, it's, it's the self part of you. It's the prideful, self-reliant, I think I'm kind of awesome, I think other people maybe just aren't seeing it just yet, kind of part of you, you know? That that's what temptation is doing. It's just, it's a marketing ploy, but self is at, like, that's the, the thing being offered to you. Here's what it sounds like sometimes. See, see if any of these, like, if this sounds like any of the voices or the feelings that you ever have in the face of something uh, that is tempting, um, you're, you're pretty smart and you have some good ideas too. Like, who are they? You deserve it. You should just do that thing because you deserve it. If you do that, it will, it'll feel so good. If you, if you do this, it will make you happy, and you deserve to be happy. If you do this, it'll make you feel valued and worthwhile. If you do this, it'll, it'll help you fit in. Look, it, this is, bottom line, this is what you want. So just go for it. Who cares about everybody else? No one will know. No one will get hurt. No one will even find out. All of those things that roll in and out of our being, it's marketing. But it's marketing your pride and your ego. Now, does that always come from this, 
like demonic, satanic like world. Not always. I'm pretty capable of, of being a prideful egomaniac all without any help from the, the, the satanic world. Now, there are times when I believe that that's the case, but we're carrying this brokenness around with us all the time. And we have to recognize uh, exactly what is going on here. And so I'll give you a little bit of homework. Uh, if you're, you don't have to turn in, but um, I'd like you to do this. And you're not going to want to because I don't want to. But uh, think, about, think about your, like, your like, sinful patterns. Like the, the things that you're just like, repetitively like, just messing up with. And try to try to figure out what is the slogan that's being marketed toward me that I am buying into. Another way to call it is a lie. But if you think of it as like a slogan, because we know Disney World is not the happiest place on earth. We know that what happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas. Like we know all those things. So identify what's the slogan that's like, like rolling through my being that's for some reason making me feel like taking control of this, taking this shortcut, avoiding whatever it is that God has in front of me, uh, whatever it is that is inflating my own ego when I believe it, like try to pin it down, write it on a sheet of paper and stare at it. Because we have to, at some point, we have to recognize like the emptiness of, of what temptation is offering to us. Jesus shows us this three times. Here's the enemy bringing these, these things that really, like at first, you're like, man, that must have been so hard for him to say no to. And it's like, no, not when you've been fasting and praying for 40 days. You're dialed in. A part of our problem is that, that we, 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 I think, struggle so much to, to stay really locked in with what God's doing is that, is that it's harder to spot those lies. It's hard to spot those slogans. It's harder to, to spot those things as they come in and out of our lives. And so uh, a part of what Lent does for us is it orients us in a way to where we're, we're fasting from something every day. And so you're, you're missing this thing and you're replacing it with, with some sort of connection to God every single day. And as this happens, it helps us stay dialed into the marketing ploy of temptation and it helps us look at those slogans and just shake our head and just be like, whatever. So, do your homework, don't do your homework, well, up to you. But I would encourage you to do that because I think it would behoove you and me. And it would change our church. So not only does he have to wrestle with this appeal to pride, but there's an even kind of new thing that we see in here. Uh, in, the, in this account, when you read it in, in order, uh, the first two, first time Jesus, the enemy says, hey, how about this? And Jesus answers with the Bible. Second time, how about this? Jesus answers with the Bible. So the enemy is like, okay, I'm going to use the Bible because apparently this guy likes the Bible. I'm going to use it, but I'm going to use it against him and see if I can trip him up. And so he uses Psalm 91, 11 and 12. So this is what, this is what verses 10 is what he's quoting. He says, uh, verse 10, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. See, this is misapplying the verses from Psalm 91. Uh, the Psalm 91 does not endorse like forcing God's hand of protection by placing yourself in danger. But that's what he's trying to do. He's like, throw yourself down and then God's going to have to rescue you because it's in the Bible, which you love so much. Now, Jesus is, you know, obviously sharp and uh, spots the lie again. 
But what's, what's the enemy really doing here? He's, he's trying to, to get Jesus to use God's character to like, endorse his own rebellion and for his own selfish gain. So let me take these two verses from the Psalms. Let me twist them a little bit. So God has to rescue you, right? Like, aren't you so precious to him? Isn't this what the Bible says? And Jesus spots it because he's like, I know what the Bible says because I wrote it. And that's not what it means because I wrote it. But, but what, a, what a tactic. That's what I want to kind of zero in just for a second. What a, what a weird tactic. To use the character of God, the very words of God, to find a way to help you kind of justify what you really want to do. That's what he's doing. And I think that tactic is one that's used on the church a lot. I wrote down a few examples. You kind of think like, well, Jesus, I mean, he'll forgive me, right? I mean, he already died to cover that sin, right? Like he died once for all things, right? Like past, present, and future, like, right? He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's, that's the verse, right? Like, Grace, love, mercy, forgiveness, like all these, these, these things that are these beautiful, like deep movements of God to his people. And the temptation can be to twist those a little bit. To, um, to take advantage of them. To find a way for that to maybe justify what we want to do. Or kind of convince us that something's not really a big deal, you know, those kinds of things. So, Jesus is facing this temptation to take control of God's timeline and the manner of his role in the story, to use God's character for his own gain by forcing God's hand and misapplying the verse, and by giving into his ego's desire to be famous. Like, there's so many layers to this, it's like stunning. And yet, Jesus again just simply says no to him. There's a refusal to give in to any of those things. And so verse 12, Jesus answered him. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, I will not misuse the promises of God or take advantage of his character to further my own agenda or endorse my own rebellion. God, I, God is not one that I test. That's, that's not how this works. That's not who he is to me. So, self-denial. Then we move to take up his cross daily. What does that look like? As I've said each week, it's, it, it is obedience no matter what it costs you. Taking up a, a cross was, a, was a, like a, an action. And when you take up your cross, that is how you say no to self and yes to the Lord. It's, I said it last week, it's, it's this one motion. It's almost like you don't have to tell the enemy no or yourself, your flesh no. You simply just pick that thing up. Whatever, whatever obedience looks like in, the, in, like in the path that's in front of you, you bear that. You willingly pick that up. And in that moment, your flesh and, and that all appeal to self, it wilts away. And you're focused on the one who's calling you forward. So Jesus says, no, I will not take your shortcut and throw myself out of the building. 
Instead, I'm going to remain on God's path for me. I'm going to remain on this long obedience toward the cross and through the cross, and whatever it costs me is absolutely worth it. In verse 3, so in the first temptation account and in verse 9, uh, the enemy says, uh, if you are the son of God, then do this. He goes after his identity. And so if we're talking about obedience, self-denial, saying no to self, saying yes to the Lord, in terms of, of obedience, uh, there is a... Um, well, it kind of backfires on him. Like in this, in this moment where he's like, if you're the son of God, then do this. What he just did, because he's just not really that smart, um, he just reminded Jesus of who he is. So if you're the son of God, and what if Jesus in a moment is like, oh yeah, I heard him speak from heaven. So he reminds him of his identity, actually trying to you know, push him in another direction. But I think it backfires him because it reminds him of what is true. And obedience is always going to be tied to an accurate embracing of who you are. So you have to know what, what the Bible says about you. You have to know what the scriptures say. You have to, we, have to, we have to treasure this book. So sinners act like sinners, right? So who are we in relation to God? Let me run through a list really fast. Who am I in relation to God? Well, it says in Matthew 6 that um, I'm a child relating to my father. It says in Ephesians 5 that I'm a bride relating to my husband. It says in Psalm 23 that I'm a sheep relating to my shepherd. It says in John 15 that I'm a, a branch relating to my vine. Uh, it says in Romans 8 that I'm an heir who is in relation to another heir, a co-heir. In John 15 it says I'm a friend relating to another friend. In Revelation 5 it says that I'm a, I'm a former sinner who is now a saint who is relating to my Savior. In Second uh, Corinthians five, it says, "I'm a citizen who's in relation to my king." I mean, how many? Like, you have all those kinds of things, and you're thinking about all the different ways that God's trying to get it through our thick skulls of how He sees us and how we relate to Him. And when you get all that in front of you, do you think that you want to rebel and say, "I don't care what you want for me. I'm doing what I want to do. You clean up the mess." You don't want to say that when you're focused on who you are. When you're focused on who you are, you want to say, yes, Lord. Your name, your renown, the desire of my soul. You put it in front of me. I, I, I'm, I'm not veering to the left or to the right. I know who I am. And so having that deep sense of identity empowers you to kneel down, pick up that cross and bear it today. And to wake up tomorrow and to do the same thing over and over and over again. Because you are not the one who says yes to self. That's not who you really are. That is who you were. You are the one who's been given a spirit of power and love and sound mind. You run at the battle. You don't run away from it. That's who you are. Our rabbi models that for us in the desert. He says no to himself in the face of temptation. He says yes to the Lord because he's like, no, I am the son of God. But watch what, watch what a son of God does. A son of God says yes to God. A son of God does not say yes to self. And that is who we are. We saw it in Reese's life just now. Buried with him, raised with him, identified with him, the mind of Christ. 
So he models that for us. And the last part, he, what does it mean to follow? It just means to, like, with all that in mind, again, we, we, just, we stay close to the Lord. Jesus' answers were, you, you don't put the Lord your God to the test. He's referencing a, a part of the story of, of Israel where they just kept abandoning him and, and he's trying to take care of them and they're like, no, we know better and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, look, I, I saw Israel mess the whole thing up. I'm going to get it right. I'm going to get it right. God's not one you test. He's one you, you stay so close to that you have no issue trusting him. And so we walk with him. Through the scriptures and through prayer and through community, we stay close to the Lord. He uses all those things to keep us there. And so we, you choose the truth of the Lord's path. So, I'm trying to, I know I've crammed a lot in here, but this is kind of, it's kind of, this is not a, uh, it's not a quick and easy passage. So in looking at this third, this third temptation and these, these ideas about self-denial and, and obedience uh, and uh, relationship with the Lord, that's really what, he, that's what that verse means. I don't know where it hits the closest to home with you. Maybe you've been given into your pride and your ego. Maybe you've been kind of using the character and promises of God to endorse maybe your own rebellion and kind of justify it. Maybe you've been avoiding obedient steps because of what it's going to cost you or living out of your old identity instead of the new one God provides, or maybe you're just distant and withdrawn from the Lord. I mean, all these things, I, I don't know how it fits with you, but I bet it fits somewhere. God didn't bring you here to just hear like this random stuff. There's, there's something that you connected with it could be a song lyric, it could be a, a, a verse, it could, I mean, there's an outside chance, something that I had to say, whatever. Uh, God didn't bring you here, though, randomly. And so we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to respond to whatever it is that is stirring in us. Um, so I'm going to pray for us. Uh, how about you stand? I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to kind of walk us through what the response time will look like. Father, our um, our trajectory has been set toward uh, toward the cross, and we have, um, as a community, we have found ways to join you in the desert. Jesus, I'm thankful for your example, and so I pray, Father, whether it's self denial or obedience or just closeness with you, what. It, Wherever things hit home today, would you help us as a room to be responsible with whatever you're, with, the, with the things you're stirring in us this morning? Help us to, to not worry about anything other than connecting with you more deeply in the next couple of minutes. And so, um, yeah, we love you, Father. And this time is is yours. And so I um, pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let me kind of walk you through what, what our options are. If you're here each week, there's nothing different than, uh, than normal. Um, 
we feel like different different personalities and different things going on in the moment um, around the room. We want to give you some some options, and so uh, one of the the ways you can come, you can kneel and pray down here at the steps. Uh, a couple of us will be on the front row if you want to come and talk about something. Um, we'd love to pray with you, uh, especially if you're hearing a lot of talk about following Jesus, and you're like you just have some questions about that. We'd love. Love to talk more about that. Maybe there's something going on in your life, and it would you feel like it'd be helpful to come kneel and pray? Come on down uh, at any point. Uh, you can, of course, you can stay where you are and sing. You can. Uh, we, we have two communion lines. Uh, they are gluten free. If that's helpful to you, um, we have two communion lines, and uh, one of the things that Jesus has given us as a gift is uh, it's it's. It's things like baptism and, and communion that allow us something tangible to do that, re, that reminds us of the grace that we need, that Jesus is offering himself to us, uh, his body broken for you, his blood poured out for you. And so uh, you don't have to be a member of this church uh, to receive communion. Uh, you'll take the bread, you'll dip it yourself, and you'll take it. And so you just have to be one who has said yes to Jesus, uh, and you're welcome in our line. Uh, there's a number of ways to respond to whatever may be stirring. I just uh, ask you to steward that well in these next closing moments. So our lines are open. You can come whenever you're ready.